we're going to get started with some teaching today. Now, at any point today, my voice might go completely out. I might have to throw in a cough drop. We'll see. Some of you are praying that my voice goes out, and then you can get on with your day. But um, I want to start off with a conversation about the Lord of the Rings. Oh, a couple of people. Yeah. So real quick, audience participation time, the Lord of the Rings. Who are some of the good people? Who are some of the, who are some of the good, who's, who's on the good side? Throw them out. What? Sam, Aragorn, Legolas, Gandalf, Darth Vader's not in there. <laughs> what did you say? The ire. The yeah, is that from the book? Because most people, yeah, yeah. By the way, if you haven't read the books, but you love Lord of the Rings, then you don't love Lord of the Rings. I'm just saying right now, if you're just a movie person. Who are the bad people? Who? Sauron. Saruman. I know, like, are they like brothers? Yeah, anybody else? The what? The orcs. Got all these things. The ring race, terrifying, right? Like the first time you're like, what? So I want you to just think about using your imagination a bit when you're, when you're watching the Lord of the Rings and you're contemplating what's happening and all the different forces that are happening. We are in this series in the book of Revelation. And what I shared with you towards the beginning of it as we were talking about genre and context and all that stuff is that there are, John is setting up two real opposing forces. John is talking about the lamb, the sevenfold spirits. There's going to be a woman we're going to talk about today. The seven churches, witnesses, 24 elders, good angels, and, and, and the new Jerusalem as characters in the narrative. And then there are some evil characters. We're going to meet two beasts today. And the dragon. And there are all sorts of demonic and human servants. And Babylon we're going to meet next week. And the reason why I bring up Lord of the Rings in, in your imagination is the Lord of the Rings wasn't like real. The reason why, hold on, and no one watches the Lord of the Rings and, and goes, oh man, that's Mikhail Gorbachev, or that's, right? Now, now, some of you are like, wait a second, Ryan, are you saying Revelation isn't real? No, I actually am saying it is very real. Much like J.R.R. Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings, he wrote the Lord of the Rings because he was seeing it play out, this battle in human, in human existence. Very much John is seeing the same thing. John is communicating something 2,000 years before the Lord of the Rings. And what he's seeing play out, especially in the lives of these followers of Jesus in Asia Minor, trying to live faithfully to Jesus in the midst of just a lot. The message of the seven churches was to a reminder for them to choose their team. To choose Babylon or the New Jerusalem. To choose Team Lamb or become part of what the dragon was up to. And the goal for us is to be hopeful. The goal for us is to think uh, similar ways. Like how, how is all of this playing out around us? How are we supposed to be faithful to the character of the slain lamb. Last week we talked about the day of the Lord. This week we're going to be talking about the beast and the dragon. Next week we're going to be talking about Babylon. And these are three major themes, not only in Revelation, but all throughout Scripture. And it's going to be real thick today. So just buckle up. We got some work to do, and it's going to be fun. This book was meant to inspire hope, not to freak you out and make you build a bomb shelter. It's meant to inspire hope. 
And we're in the middle of three repeating cycles of seven. Now, three and seven are like beautiful numbers, all right? In, in and these are cycles of judgment that call back the attention of everybody hearing this to the flood and the exile, you know, and, and, and to Exodus. And they all represent three tellings of the day of the Lord. Now, between the trumpets and the bowls, everybody's like, what's the trump? What's this trumpet going to be? What's that one? These are all just retellings of, of day of the Lord imagery all throughout the Old Testament. So if you missed that, that's last week and go listen to it. Two things we're going to do today, two stepping stones. The first one's in Genesis, second one is in Daniel. And then we're going to land in, Gen- in, in Revelation. And it's really important that we get some background. Like I said, Revelation is built into it, baked into it, or 400 references to the Old Testament. And a whole bunch of Roman propaganda. We've dealt with all that stuff. But the first thing we're going to do today is we're going to deal with this character called the serpent in Genesis 3. So in Genesis 3, well, first of all, in Genesis 1 and 2, we deal with uh, the beginnings of this beautiful epic poem um, that is describing how God brought creation out of nothingness. And God creates a temple for himself, um, the Garden of Eden, and, and it's this beautiful place where God dwells with his creation. And then he creates human beings to be in his image and his likeness, which is a, a beautiful thing to dwell on and to think about. But in chapter 3, we meet a serpent. And we meet this character in chapter 3 that is, uh, verse three, chapter 3, verse 1 says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals. And the Lord God, that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So, so we've got this serpent character that, um, that I just want to just call your attention to the fact that this serpent character uh, eventually is, is, is cursed to crawl around, which leads us to believe that this serpent character before was potentially walking or flying. Now, I know you guys are like, wait, where are we going with this? Just hold on. We have a character being brought to us in the, the imagery of the Old Testament that, that is anti-God, that is anti-God's purposes, anti-God's plan. This is where we get, in a sense, some of the origin story of Satan or what we call the devil. And it's not a pitchfork-wielding character. Um, this is much more nuanced and complex. And it all begins in Genesis 3. But it's some kind of a serpenty type character. And for the purposes of Revelation, we need to keep that image in our mind. Because in verse 15, we learn about this serpent a little bit more. This is the curse that God puts on the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. It's just a very famous uh, but really wild little bit of poem, uh, poetry here about what will happen eventually with this serpent. And there's a, there's a woman coming, and there's offspring and hers, and there, there's something going to happen some, at some point that there is going to be an interaction between these two forces. You with me? cool. The serpent then represents some sort of spiritual power in the world. And that, that will reproduce and recapitulate and expand, and it will stand in opposition to the woman and her offspring, the offspring that the woman will bear. Okay, so it makes total sense, right? Let's make it worse. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7. Now, the book of Daniel is pretty wild because Jesus quotes from the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 7, more than any other place in Scripture. And we are going to jump into this because there's so much happening. Daniel is, is a story of how to be faithful as a follower of Yahweh in a very foreign, very other religious land. 
Daniel is, he's got three friends. They're given Babylonian names. They're given Babylonian clothes. And they're given Babylonian jobs. And yet, they are very faithful. And they're in this kind of hierarchy of the, the government in, in Nebuchadnezzar's day. And they are very faithful to Yahweh during all of that. So in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has a dream, and it freaks him out, and he asks Daniel to interpret it. And it's about four statues, and they end up being four kingdoms. And then Daniel has a dream, and he goes to an angel to interpret it. And we're going to read part of the, most of Daniel chapter 7 here. Listen to this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream... And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Verse 3, Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. And, and here's where you need to know that it's very common in the Old Testament, to refer to nations as beasts, okay? If you were a small little nation and a huge army was coming towards you, I mean, this is the imagery they would use, a great beast. Listen to, look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 29. It says, their roar is like that of a lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carried off uh, with no one to rescue. This is how people in the ancient Near East dealt with and felt when they were being attacked by other nations. They felt like they were being attacked by a wild beast. And so the army is like a great lion, wild beast all throughout the Old Testament um, are used as kind of imagery. And the, the, it says in verse 4, the first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on both of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Right? Just think Trent and I like a Brazilian steakhouse, right, Trent? Just, yeah, just elbowing in. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. On its back had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had, a large, it had a large iron iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Now, we got to get into some, this is symbolism and imagery. Obviously massive symbolic language here. Beasts stand for kingdoms, and horns stand for power or kings, kings with power. Psalm 75 says, um, says this. This is kind of like this imagery of the horns. To the arrogant I say, boast no more, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift up your horns against heaven. Do not speak so defiantly. So let's work with the imagery here. Most of us are very agricultural people. When encountering a bull, what are you most afraid of? Right. <laughs> this was tough. It was a tough leap for you guys, but you nailed it, right? So that whole thing, when you mess with the bull, you get the... Yeah, this is the idea. Power and strength. Power and strength. And so what Daniel is describing is something... Think of a lot of power and a lot of strength. This beast has ten horns. So the image is like, oh man... While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one. <laughs> like, if you're just like, is he tripping right now? <laughs> Which came up among them, and, the th and three of the first horns were uprooted for it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, 
and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place. So let's stop there for a second. You got a little horn that's pushing out three other horns. This would be a great tattoo, Jaden. Where's Jaden? This would be great. Yeah, let's tat that. Yeah. Nice back tat. Yeah. Like Waterworld would not be the same if you saw that on someone's back. But anyhow, um, as I looked, thrones were set in place. And think of a courtroom being established. Think courtroom imagery. And the ancient of days took his seat. Who's the ancient of days? This is the one answer where it's not Jesus. Ancient of days is Yahweh, God, the eternal one. His clothing was as white as snow. His hair, the hair on his head was white like wool. We know that means what? Purity. And he, has a, and he has a white beard, which means wisdom. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from, from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Means a lot of people. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch before the, because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. Remember the little horn? Right? You know, sometimes it's like, man, the little guy's got the mouth, right? The little horn, he's like speaking, and he's got boastful words. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. I want to pause there for a second. One like the son of man. Um, this is a Hebrew meaning a human one or a human being. So we have all of these beast imagery stuff going on, and then we have a human being. And it says this human one was coming with the clouds of heaven, approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. Duh, right? And the, visions, and, and the vision passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all of this. So he told me, so he asked for interpretation, right? It's like, what is going on? So he told me, and he gave uh, me the interpretation of these things. Verse 17, the four great beasts are what? Four kings that will rise from the earth. Beasts are kings. Political entities, something happening, nations, I don't know. There's four kings with their people. But the holy people and the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So even though there are these great rulers, and remember Daniel is in exile. He is underneath the, the rulership of Belshazzar. And even though they're these great rulers and even though they rule, they will not rule forever. And the people of God will be vindicated. And the word vindication is something that we we don't think about a lot in terms of what God does. But when you are the minority and you are following this, this, uh, this, this Yahweh, this, this God who, the creator God, and, and nobody else does, and someone tells you you're going to be vindicated, that just in, inspires and ignites hope. Verse 19, then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up. We all do, right? Before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed 
the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom. It will appear on the earth. It will be different from all, other, all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down, crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. So the beasts are kingdoms. It tells us exactly what it is. Horns and powers of the rulers, you know. And then after another king will arise, different from the earlier ones, he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people um, and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and a half a time. This is a symbolic way of saying not forever, for a short time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. Everybody said, yes, finally. Um, and I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale but I kept the matter to myself. Yeah, I would too, Daniel. <laughs> Daniel is serving Belshazzar. He's serving one of these great kingdoms. And if he got this kind of a vision, can you imagine the implications if he shared that? Now here's this story Daniel is telling through symbolic language. There are great kingdoms that rise up from the earth and oppress the people of God. God will arraign judgment and charges against those nations. He will throw them down and vindicate the people of God who have suffered under the oppressive nature of those kingdoms. And there's one king of the fourth kingdom in particular who will be particularly egregious and he will be judged differently because he will be doing different things and more harmful things to the people of God. Now, question for us. Are there any books in the Bible that may talk about God's people being persecuted under a beastly empire who are crying out for justice until one comes to hold that nation to accountability and then the people of God have been oppressed under this beastly empire will be vindicated? Are there any books in the Bible, potentially, that talk about that? That's a great answer. What I was going for was revelation, but that's, a, that's true. We are seeing over and over again God doing this with his people. And we land in this beautiful book, this very hard to understand book of revelation. And the reason why we're doing it like this, guys, is because there are some folks right now, my Instagram feed is flooded with it, my Facebook feed's flooded with it, that what is happening right now in the Middle East is what people think is uh, uh, Daniel, that, that, that there's a whole bunch of nations stacking up against Israel, and there's going to be this big final Armageddon battle. And I uh, want to say, I don't, I don't know. And that's not the point. There are some people that I think Daniel is referring that, that think Daniel's refer, referring to a future battle, um, and these great kingdoms will come and do their thing. What I think is happening is most of the scholars I read and traffic in are pretty convinced that what Daniel's referring to is a parade of nations that keep coming in and sweeping through the land that we now know as Israel. And for Israel, Israel ex exiled to Babylon, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Syrians, the Greeks, all leading into the Romans. And that the people of that time would have understood this text. Not referring just to something way out in the future, but there's something that they're feeling right in here in the moment. These seven house churches in Revelation are feeling in the moment. I mean, think about, they, they've just come out of a season where um, just 150 years before, there was Antiochus Epiphanes IV, 200 years before. 
And Antiochus Epiphanes IV was so blasphemous, um, he comes in and he, he overtakes Jerusalem and he, he cancels the Torah, and so the Jews couldn't practice the Torah at all in Jerusalem. He put to death Jewish men and women in the temple courtyard. He outlawed Sabbath. He outlawed circumcision. He outlawed any festival or feast. And then he most egregiously sacrifices a pig in the Holy of Holies. And there's some people that think that this was such an egregious act that this had something to do with Daniel at the time. Now, whether or not you see it in these ways, I just want to introduce you to the concept of a talking flying snake, a beast, and the horns of the beast. Because we are going to jump into Revelation chapter 12. And I know you guys are like, you've already talked for too long. Just hang with me. Because the, we believe the Bible interprets itself. And we do, we bring things to it, but the Bible helps us to understand what other places in the Bible are talking about. And in Revelation chapter 12, we're going to introduce to a dragon and some beasts. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its head. Okay, now, if you are steeped in Jewish tradition. If you are a Jewish follower of Jesus, what is racing through your mind right now? A woman and her offspring versus a serpent and his offspring? Where's that coming from? It's coming from Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is playing out. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment she, he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will what? Rule the nations with an iron scepter. Where's that language? We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's, it's Psalm 2 talking about a Messiah who was Jesus. And her child was snatched up to God to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Wild, right? That's three and a half years. What's half a seven? What's seven mean? Complete time. So, so what John is saying is for a, for a time, but not forever. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. He was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time times and a half a time out of the serpent's reach. And this is where it gets super weird. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then 
Then the dragon was enraged at the woman who went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Wow. Beautiful, symbolic, heavy, Lord of the Rings, imaginative forces at work, things going on. Heavy. This is John explaining to the seven churches why they are being persecuted. And that it's not just Rome that's persecuting them. Are you with me? I know there's a lot of imagery and we can't get into all of it. I don't have an answer for the river and the mouths and the things and all that that's going on. The point is that John in the middle of these great cycles of seven is saying to the Roman uh, Jewish followers of Jesus that what you're experiencing exactly is exactly what was promised in Genesis 3. That it's not just an arbitrary Rome doesn't like you and is beginning to persecute you. It's this, what we've been seeing throughout the history of God's people. That there is something behind this treatment you're receiving. And one last bit of scripture, and then we're going to land this. You guys are just so brave. I'm so proud of you. This, I, I just be honest, this is the thickest of all of the Revelation conversations. And we're in conversation eight, and there's only five more. So just, you're almost there. The dragon stood, chapter 13, on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. What's a beast? There you go. You guys are reading it. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns. And each head had a blasphemous name. This is like kind of, this is Daniel 7 right here, right? We just kind of tasted the serpent in Genesis 3. This is Daniel 7 right here. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but he had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. Okay, we know the beast is a kingdom. We know it's an oppressive, violent kingdom because of Daniel 7. Verse 4, people worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. So there's a relationship between the beast and the nation. There's a relationship that the, 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 the dragon has with the beast, given the beast power, but the beast was helping everybody worship the dragon. It was just like this connection. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Think about just like that time, the Roman military, the, the power of the Roman military. Who can even come against this? This thing is a juggernaut machine. Soldiers everywhere, and they just power who can come against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words. Wait a second. We got one more. I think I missed one. Nope. Yep. Here we go. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. Let me, uh, 42 months is what? Three and a half what? There we go. Here's the thing that's interesting. And I get so fired up about this. All that Roman propaganda we talked about, all that blasphemy of like Domitian saying, worship me, I'm the Lord, and all that kind of stuff. Do you remember all that stuff? Think about this. If you're the people listening to this, you are like, oh my gosh. Michael Gorman in his book, this is one of the books I've recommended if you guys want to do some more background reading on this. He says, the function of propaganda is to make evil look good. The demonic divine. Violence like peacemaking. Gosh, man, just in my lifetime, how much just like our own country has done that. And I'm not, don't get... 
tyranny and oppression like liberation. It makes blind, unquestioning allegiance appear to be freely chosen, religiously appropriate devotion. Eventually, the rhetoric becomes blatant falsehood, but now people have not only come to believe the lie, they also live the lie, and over time, they have been narrated into it. So we've looked at this Roman propaganda stuff, um, and, and, and just this is part of what's going on here. Uh, verse 6, it opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. This is straight out of Daniel. Okay? It was given authority over every tribe, people, and language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those names who have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone goes, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. Which is like, this is, this is out of Jeremiah. This is, I don't understand. I mean, this just seems clear, but it's, if anyone is to be killed with a sword, the sword will be, with the sword, they will be killed. It's like, okay. Uh, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then we see a second beast. Coming out of the earth, it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So it's a different beast, but it's almost like the propaganda beast. It's getting everybody to be excited about the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed, it says, and it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth, full of few of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. And this is what you've all been waiting for. The mark of the beast. The mark of the beast, real quick. Is it the vaccine? Is it credit cards? <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, that was the answer, no. <laughs> Maybe this is a reference of something we, we miss entirely. Maybe this is a very Jewish reference that we need to understand. Okay, the Jews were required to what? Write a, a, a piece of Scripture and affix it to their right hands and to their foreheads. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is, we, we did the, the Shema last week, and we're going to do it again today. This is called the Shema. The Jewish people were to affix this to their wrists, to their foreheads. And the idea behind this, I believe, is kind of an anti-Shema. It says, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast and the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Now, uh, the worship of the dragon, I'm gonna get, we're going to get back to that here in a second. The worship of the dragon and the worship um, of Yahweh are actually the worship, a war of two trinities. On the one hand, you have Yahweh, and the Son of Man, and the sevenfold spirit. On the other hand, you have the beast, the two beasts, and the dragon. And, and you have this, the lamb on the throne, and you have all these different imageries in your head. And they both call for absolute allegiance. There's no middle ground between what John is trying to present to the people. There's no middle ground here. And the, uh, John's first audience would be like hearing these words and 
and writing the words of Yahweh on your right hand and on your forehead would, ex- and, and then there's this other like invitation to follow the beast. And so to ask the question, what is the mark of the beast, is sometimes not to ask the right question. The point of the writer is making is that both trinities demand absolute allegiance, and to them there's no middle ground. And first, you know, we've got this whole thing, the Old Testament stuff that flies over our heads, and, and we have to do a lot of work, and you've done a lot of work today. I'm really proud of you. And then there's, there's the birth of the dragon, and there's the losing of the war, and there's all this stuff. But the way the ancient serpent persecutes God's people is through an earthly kingdom. That The dragon has set himself up behind a powerful, militaristic nation to push against the people of God, to pursue the offspring of the people of God. And when we think of spiritual warfare, a lot of us think of like um, Jesus casting out demons in in the New Testament, which is yes and yes. Um, But a lot of us think of it more of an individualistic thing, like, oh man, really tempted by this Snickers and... um, you know, I'm not making fun. I'm just saying, like, sometimes we think it is really individualistic stuff, but Revelation paints a different picture of spiritual warfare that says that there's oppressive and violent regimes working to persecute God's people and, and the work of the dragon through those kingdoms on the earth and their rulers. And um, the, the natural question for a lot of us is when we just kind of parachute into chapter 13 is, who's the beast? What's the mark of the beast? And we think it's somebody called the Antichrist. But the word Antichrist is never used in Revelation. Not one time. And what is, Daniel has trained us to know that a beast is a nation. It's a kingdom. And then he says, hey, let every careful reader understand and you could, he, I think personally, I think the people who heard this letter knew who this was. Because he says they would know that they could calculate and figure it out. How would they calculate it? They didn't have numbers. All their numbers were letters. And so it's gematria, which is taking the letters, uh, they, they, taking numbers and letters and working it all together. And a lot of people are like, it says Nero Caesar. A lot of people actually think that Domitian thought he was the reincarnation of Nero. So there's some stuff there that I'm, I'm not, I, I can't show all my work. I'm just telling you, <laughs> there's a lot going on here. And we have a lot of superstitions about this number. We just had Halloween, right? Some of you are like, man, you know, I, I just got, you know, my order at Taco Bell just ended at 666, and I just threw the Taco Bell out. You know, <laughs> she's like, oh my gosh, you know, it's 666. What are we going to do? You know, like, I mean, you <laughs> They didn't wait 2,000 years, and this is a joke for me. This is, I grew up thinking, I, people told me that Mikhail Gorbachev is the beast. I mean, he had a spot on his head, and they're like, see, he was like a wound. And... <laughs> so if you're under 40, you will not understand that reference. But, <laughs> but many people want to turn, and they're like hunting for antichrists. Uh, who's the antichrist? You know, it's, did you know it's actually a whole bunch of people? We're going we're gonna to close with this. John chapter 2, verse 18. This is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many, what? Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. First John 2. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist denying the Father and the Son. Oh, skip to Second John, Angela. Uh, can we just give a hand to Angela? She's had to do all these scriptures, and it's just like, I like her. Like I feel like my marriage was on the line today. <laughs> I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the antichrist. So what he's not saying. I'm going to just make this real clear because I've heard some weird stuff on this. He's not saying that any unbeliever you come across should be referred to as the Antichrist. 
Don't do that. (laughs) What John is dealing with in this moment is something that was called Gnosticism, and it's the belief that Jesus wasn't uh, a human one, wasn't in the flesh. And what I want you to know that when we read Revelation 12 and 13 and we're instantly thinking, who's the beast, who's 666, who's the Antichrist, it's the wrong question. The question you should be asking is, what are the real, who's the real trinity and who's this false trinity and how does the false trinity exert power over this earthly kingdom and, and what is happening in our world? What is waging war? How are, how are nations oppressing people? How are we a part of something that's like this huge beast that, that just militarily crushes other things? And, and what about economics and all of this? What about how that crushes other people? And, and John is saying the people are being persecuted by Rome because the dragon is behind it. Now, some of you are sitting here today going, this is the weirdest church service I have ever been to. I get it. But our imaginations are being called into service. Not our figuring things out and detailing and pointing in graphs and charts, our imaginations. When you see our world at work, do you see? Are you looking for the ways that God is trying to vindicate his people? We are slain lamb people. You follow Jesus, you are following the image of a slain lamb not a crushing, powerful. You are, you are following a Messiah who laid down his life for the world. And we're going to come to the table this morning as an act of subversion to all the power around us and saying, no, we follow the slain lamb. We are slain lamb people. And so when you come to the table this morning, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke the liberation bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. He broke the bread that Jesus, that God had come in Exodus to rescue, to deliver, to vindicate God's people. He broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And then the same Passover cup, is a symbol of the, uh, the, the blood that Jesus would, would eventually spill. He passed that and said, this is the symbol of my blood for you. Now what happens next is something I find very, very interesting. Jesus, hours later, would find himself in front of the high priest. In the high priest, it says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 62, and this is not going to be on the screen, he says, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? And what he had asked Jesus was, are you Messiah? He says, are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under, the oath, under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus responds, you have said so. But listen to this. Think back to Daniel 7. But I say to all of you from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's a direct reference to Daniel 7. And what was Daniel 7 talking about? Beasts, power. No wonder why it says in verse 65 that the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Jesus, in that moment, you know what he was just doing? He was calling the religious people beasts. What 
We're called to follow a slain lamb, not to get caught up in beast activity that is all around us, that we're soaked in. This is hard stuff, but we had to go through it. And my encouragement to you is to come to the table as an act of subversion to everything that the beast is and the powers of the dragon are doing around us. Let me pray. Father, we're here chewing on a lot. We don't know we don't all know all the answers. We don't know all the whens and the hows and the whos. But you are, you are inviting us to be faithful dissidents. You are inviting us to be dissident disciples. Dissidents are those who push against the power that's all around us to, to remain faithful to your calling for us. God, give us a curiosity, give us an imagination, give us the ability to wrestle with all these thoughts. Give us the eyes to see and the imagination to see what you are up to. God, even if we, as we open the newspaper and we go, oh my goodness, it's just getting worse. Now you've called us to hope. To know that one day all of that evil, all of that power that oppresses and hurts and, and tramples will be thrown into the lake of fire. It will be gone. Then we'll awaken an age of no more crying, no more tears, no more death, no more disease. That you have an ultimate, beautiful, wonderful future for your people and you are pulling us to it. And so we come to the table as people of the slain lamb. We, we, we recognize this moment as a time for us to pledge our allegiance to a slain lamb. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who died for us, who gives us hope and a future. Amen.